This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Over 41 million Americans struggle with autoimmune disease, which means they deal with pain, fatigue, skin problems, headaches, weight fluctuation, and digestive issues. If this is you or someone you know, definitely keep listening. Today, I interview the founder of My Meat Health, Meta Derberg. And she talks about how her tool is able to help those struggling. And so far, she's been able to show results such as a tenfold decrease in fatigue, a 3.5-fold decrease in pain, and a threefold increase in physical health. So take a listen, and we begin with her personal story. I'm sort of the the traditional autoimmune patient who goes on a journey that lasts, you know, decades. I got my first autoimmune condition was 14, woke up with psoriasis head to toe. And as a 14 year old girl, that was probably the nightmare of all nightmares, right? Um, and little did I know that that was just sort of the first dot on a, on a long string of dots that was gonna all be connected. Um, and so in my late teens, early twenties, I started to struggle and, my the first half of my 20s I was really just in and out of the ER and 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 having all of these sort of weird symptoms I would lose my eyesight or I would you know have my my um my thyroid you know overreact and then by the time I would go to the doctor it would be underperforming it was just like everything was sort of like um going up and down and and I think this is something many women can relate to because those are the years that I remember the best. Being told it was all in my head, sort of um, not, no longer trusting my intuition, which had sort of been my, my, my go-to for, for the majority of my life. But all of a sudden, if I couldn't trust the way that I feel, what can I trust then? And so, um, you know, by my mid-30s, I became a cardiac patient and you know, the weekly EKGs and blood thinners and cholesterol lowers and all the stuff that comes with that um, actually sort of set off a cascade of events, or you can say it was like a domino effect that by 30, I had collected an additional six autoimmune conditions. I was giving myself, you know, Humira injections on a weekly basis and, and really, um, you know, setting out for life as a chronic patient. And at the time, my mental model was really get the best doctors and that will equal the best health. And that was sort of my mantra. And I had doctors at different hospitals and different specialties. And, and, and this is not to say that, you know, having the right doctor is not an important part of the journey. But for me, I had become too reliant, I think, on outside help. It, because I didn't trust my body, I didn't trust my own judgment. And so 
when in my mid thirties, my doctors, one of my doctor's team told me that they had quote unquote great news and then proceeded to tell me I wasn't going to die in the immediate future. I was actually so naive that I said, that's okay. What's the great news? And it got exceedingly awkward because they had actually seen this as great news. And I remember asking, but what are we going to do about my process? Thinking there must be something that we're going to be doing, right? And he didn't even really flinch. He just looked me straight in the eye and said, well, we're happy with your numbers. And as an economist, that was completely unacceptable. And so I walked out of UCLA that day and I called my mom and I said, I'm not going back. And needless to say, I didn't have any solutions. Like, you know, as any company, people would like to sort of now make it out to like, Meta is this superhero who got sick and then she just like changed everything. No, I spent 20 years in the system. I went, you know, in and out of the hospital, you know, probably more uh, weird bodily symptoms than most people have gone through in their lives. And, and only because it was very clear to me at the end that they didn't know how to help me did I sort of like set out on this journey. And luckily for me, um, I, because of a lot of luck and coincidence, it sort of ended up being that I found a solution, right? So in my case, because I didn't know anything about healthcare and, you know, that is the fundamental behind the company that I ended up building is not knowing anything was sort of the godsend because I started applying the only thing I knew, which was process optimization to my own body. And little did I know that causality and patterns were sort of built into my DNA And so I started quite quickly seeing, okay, there's certain things that made me feel better and certain things that that didn't really help me. And um, really through journaling and transferring everything into Excel spreadsheets and realizing I needed metadata. So I started texting myself and building a couple of algorithms to look at the causality between what I was doing and how I was feeling. I tapered my way out of first my cardiac issues after five months and proved that I didn't actually have a cardiac problem. I had a very different issue. And then, you know, 16 months later, I was in a place where I normalized my blood work. I had reversed all my disease symptoms and I've been drug and symptom free for nine years now. So needless to say, that was a huge undertaking and it would really have, you know, ended there had it not been for the response of the doctors, because, you know, as, as anyone, right. You know, you know, all the books on and every shelf out there is somebody found a solution that worked for them. And now they sort of want to evangelize that they want to let somebody know so others can benefit. And so off I went with my little laptop under my arm and my doctors didn't really want to see my data. And not only that, yeah, but they also actually, had the nerve to tell me that I hadn't been sick in the first place. And so as, as you know, everybody has different mindsets, right? But in my head, all I could think of was I'm a foreigner with a lot of pre-existing conditions and an insurance premium through the roof. So I put out my hand and I said, I'll take that deal. And my doctor goes, what deal? I said, you just told me that it was psychological and it was all in my head, right? And I said, if that's the case, it goes off the EHR. And he goes, oh, no, 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 you know, your, 
liver issues and your organs and your blood work and all that is, is all of them absolutely we, we're definitely not taking enough EHR and I remember just getting angry like really angry at that moment because I felt like I've been here for 20 years in and out of doctor's offices in and out of places where I was being told what I should feel and how I should think and now I find a solution and and your sort of rhetoric is that oh, you couldn't have been sick in the first place. And so to me, it was very clear. Either I had been sick and reversed it in an Excel spreadsheet, and you might think of that whatever you want, or there's the alternative B, but you can't have sort of a mixed model. Um, but, it, but it ignited something in me that sort of didn't, that fire didn't go out, even though I just started my last company and was super psyched about it. This sort of kept nagging and kept playing a larger and larger role. And over the, the next four to five years, I saw 33 people that had you know, been worth, referred through friends or through the Quantified Self Movement or somewhere. And so in 2015, I was like, you know what? If we can reverse disease on you know, a wide spectrum of people with very differing diagnoses, I think we can build a methodology and scale this. And so from the beginning, we really set out to do this more so from the perspective of how do we solve a big problem and less about how do we find a business model? Because we really thought from the beginning, if we could solve a big enough problem, there would be somebody willing to pay for it. Um, in hindsight, I would probably recommend everybody to think a little bit more about how to monetize early on. But um, but for us, it was different. And, and I think, you know, we've built a company today that is majorly people like myself who's reversed their own autoimmune disease. So the stubbornness of the, and the girl power, I would say, of, of the team that is today Miami is something that I'm extremely proud of and, and you know, making changes day by day. Um, and I think, you know, when, when you and me talked at the future of care, we were talking about infertility, right? And one of the things that I often sort of like try to, to draw parallels between is how we think of health as these compartmentalized things. You know, I would go to the doctor, it's, you know, stomach issue. I had, you know, rectal bleeding for two years. I had brain fog. I had joint pain. I had, you know, all these different things. And the system really just sends you in different directions because it doesn't actually know how to think about the, the processes. And because your, your body is a beautiful machine, once you actually start optimizing the processes and get the machine running again, um, a lot of things fall into place. And I actually regained my fertility at 40 after having been infertile since my PCSO, PCOS diagnosis at 23. So, you know, once, you know, you actually go through all of that, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite fascinating to see what an amazing machine the body is. I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's funny when you were talking about process optimization. So I'm a consultant by day, and I have found the same thing even through my fertility journey. And my son, he's having... Um, issues with potty training. And I've gone to, I live in New York city, so I have access to the best specialists. So my fertility journey, it took 10 doctors 
Um, with my son, I've gone to, I think, three or four. And, you know, unfortunately, I will say the last appointment was so eye-opening because it was a really good doctor and you could tell he was stuck by the system. You know, expert after expert, even my best friend, she's a doctor at one of the top children's hospitals in the world. And she's dealing with some family stuff as well. And she's frustrated and she's a doctor. And I, I remember reading a book where I, I always forget the name of it when I'm on the podcast, but I do put it into my show notes. So check out the show notes, guys. But the, the doctor, it's, it was actually called How Healing Works. And there's a sentence in there I highlighted. And because he was a, a traditionally trained doctor and then went into being a naturopath. And there's a sentence in there that says, traditional medicine is not set up for chronic conditions. It is very clear on what to do if you have, for example, a broken arm. But once it becomes chronic, the system is just not set up. And because you need a cross-functional team. And unfortunately, it's not how a lot of places are set up. People are starting to get to that model, but it's still very siloed. Um, and so it's great to see what you're doing. So, so why don't you tell us a bit about um, what MIME does? And then I want to get into some of the themes that you're uncovering. Because I think one of them we're seeing is that the healthcare system isn't optimized for what's truly needed when you're dealing with a chronic condition. Um, so maybe you can talk about what you're trying to do outside of the simple, we know you're trying to solve for these chronic conditions, but maybe a little bit about how and some of the success stories. So I, I think our approach really to autoimmunity is in unique in the way that we're really um, trying to identify triggers. So when, when we think about you know, autoimmunity traditionally, it's over a hundred different diseases based on where the body is getting attacked. We are fundamentally asking a different question, which is why. And that's addressing the underlying mechanism of autoimmunity. So let's say you had breast cancer and I had prostate cancer. Nobody would be in any doubt that the mechanism of action was cancer. But with autoimmunity, we've actually looked at how complex this is, how different these are, because it's different parts of the body but we've never really understood what was the underlying driver for why the immune system gets quote unquote confused and attacks itself. So what we do is we identify triggers and you could say, well, what, what does that mean? So it, it basically means that we take the body signaling. So it could be a runny nose after breakfast. It could be joint pain. It could be gastrointestinal. It could be whatever the symptoms is for the individual. And we turn that noise into understanding by using sort of a causality pattern. So people actually have an app, it gets tailored to them. It's an iterative process over time. So, you know, we, we, we actually tailored to the extent where like, we just did a chronic pain study with Cornell where the clinical language was mild, moderate, severe pain. But whether you've been in a car crash or whether you have RA, that's very different, right? So we actually then figure out that for the RA patient, it means achy joints, mobility issues, I can't get out of bed. And by doing that, you, you make two things happen. One, people identify with the symptoms, but you also make it discreet enough that there's no doubt. People know exactly when they can't get out of bed. So you get a very good signal to, to set up against what people are then doing. 
Then we use technology to find the causality and patterns to understand that three hours and 10 minutes after Diet Coke is when you have an upset GI or 68 hours after dairy, you don't have any bowel movements or whatever the implication is. And we then take all of these machine insights and have health coaches that have all reverse stone autoimmune disease translate those insights into behavior change. And, and this is key because I think a lot of times, you know, because we, we have built a healthcare system where it's sort of like, you know, a, a one pill fix all. In, in autoimmunity, there's no one size fits all. Even, even though there, it's on many different layers, let's say you have 20 different autoimmune diseases or you have 20 people with the same autoimmune disease, they still don't have the same triggers and they definitely do not have the same behaviors, right? So first is identifying the individual's trigger and then it is masseusing that into people's lives to become sustainable. And for some people, the obstacle is that they're addicted to their trigger. You know, we've had people give up nightshades and then take up smoking because it's, it's that ingrained that they just need it. We've had others where the biggest problem is that their wives wants to get divorced or, you know, something else because the fear around change goes super deep. And so it's actually a, a pretty involved process of getting people to actually make the changes. Most though are quite surprised by what ends up being the culprits. You would imagine that most people had sort of an inkling of what it was. And a lot of the, the testimonials we get are actually like, you know, I've been sick for decades. I thought, you know, gluten was an issue and I've cut it completely out. And coming into Miami, we found out that actually it's not gluten that's the problem, it's corn. And by cutting out gluten, I actually ate more corn and that was why I was sick. So, so a lot of times people have done quite a lot of work or quite a lot of alterations, but they've just not been able to pinpoint exactly what's the culprit. So we essentially, you know, it's, it's your journey, but we provide the map. And I think from my perspective, the interesting part is that we've not only been able to help individuals in the end of one, but when you, as a company, only look at outliers, they start to look an awful lot alike. And so whereas the traditional way has been to look at all these autoimmune diseases is different, we've actually been able to treat over 60 different autoimmune diseases by using the same protocol. Let me ask you this. Is this all food related or are there other things that can cause this? You know, a lot of people that I've interviewed and the research that I've been doing on various health issues, people have been talking a lot about elimination diets where you eliminate certain foods and then you add them back in every three days and see how you feel. And a lot of the things you've been alluding to are food related causalities to triggering these uh, symptoms with the autoimmune condition. So can you talk a little bit more about, is it just food? And then I have a, a couple of other questions in there after you answer. So, so it's never just food, but lifestyle environment makes up for more than 80% of the immune system. And in our data, 82% of the triggers are dietary. So a large majority of the triggers we find are actually in what we eat. And 
On top of that, we then have sort of what we call the environmental factors that could be UV light, it could be uh, mold. There's, there's so many different ways and stressors in people's life. A bad marriage or loneliness can be worse for somebody than any other trigger, right? So, so it's definitely a varied uh, sort of spectrum. Um, the mentioning of elimination diets is sort of, you know, something that makes me shiver a little bit because I was never able to do it. I'm one of those people who you tell me not to do something and I'll be thinking about it nonstop till I do it. So for me to, you know, take everything out of my diet for three months in order to reintroduce um, was not never possible. However, that being said, what we are seeing is actually that not only are we just, just, but we're pinpointing what is what are the, the things that are the intruders so that people can just take those things out so that you don't have to like completely overhaul and take everything out. But there's also the factum that all of these things intercorrelate. So when you do certain things, they might be okay on their own, but they're not okay in combination. And so when you do an elimination diet, sort of the old school way, you're actually um, missing out on, on some of the causality that you might see. The other thing I wanted to bring up, because I remember when I met you at the Future of Care conference in 2019, you had told me a story about, um, I think, one of the people you were working with who was couldn't even get out of bed, I believe, and then you guys realized it was chicken. Um, the reason why I bring this up specifically is the other thing I've been fascinated by is depending on what you're reading around these elimination diets and these cleanses that are elimination diet oriented, they all vary in what you should be eliminating. And so I think of your chicken story, I don't think chicken is something that's on these elimination diets. If anything, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's more of eating you know, the, the organic grass-fed or however it's labeled. I just wanna iterate that point because to what you're saying in your own research, like it really depends. And I agree with you about the complexity. I see it even with myself where I'm like, I changed this one thing and on this day it's fine. And on this other day, it's not like, why, why is that happening? So thanks for illustrating that. So the reality is that then elimination diet fits very well into the healthcare system that we've built, right? We've built a, a system where there's a median and a standardized approach and the, the highest triggers is typically what you eliminate because it will work for the most people. However, what was the most people, it doesn't necessarily work for the individual, right? And I think what we are seeing is that we actually have more people react to kale and broccoli than hamburgers. And so the, the way that people go about it is that we've typically been labeling things as good and bad. And if you're histamine intolerant, it's salmon, it's avocado, it's spinach. It's things that we consider to be super healthy. And I think that's the, 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 the part where people sort of stumble is that, that we've sort of laid out tracks that lets us believe that, you know, peanuts and dairy and gluten is the evil of everything. I actually don't necessarily believe that to be true any longer. And we can actually see that when we eliminate the actual trigger for somebody, people can start eating peanut butter again, even though they've been highly allergic since childhood. And so there's something in the way 
that the body is communicating that we just don't understand yet. And I think from my perspective, we don't care. This is actually something that probably upsets more people than, than it should. But the reality is we were built as a digital care program to optimize people's health between doctor's visits. We are the equivalent of like the electric toothbrush to the dentist. We essentially not necessarily going to have all the answers, but we're going to be able to help you navigate and optimize your, your well-being and your quality of life. I now know that if I have a lupus patient coming through the door, my first question is, do you have any pancreatic cancer in the family? And people are like, what? I'm not here for cancer. Like, no, no, no. But I need to know because there's certain implications that will put you in a different bucket. It's not a small implication. It's a rather large one. We've sort of built a, a whole set of questions and ways to look at each individual walking through the door. FemPower Health is pleased to partner with the upcoming FemTech and Consumer Innovation Summit. The summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health, having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders. Join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. What are you seeing as far as their reaction to MIME and how do you see it fitting into the broader healthcare system or is that still still TBD? So maybe it's just sharing what their reaction is. No, so we actually, we actually at a place now where like the early reaction, like the first time I showed up at a hospital, I showed up at NYU with one of the most acclaimed lupus researchers and remember them saying, oh, well, we can help you test this out. And you know, one cohort would be gluten, one cohort would be dairy, one cohort would be something else. And I'm like, no, 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 that would never work. It's it's the process, right? Like that's actually, and they were like, no. And, and they were also super dismissive of like nightshades. They didn't know what that was. And I thought that's so bizarre because it's actually the biggest trigger in this lupus category. And, you know, it was sort of a, a very obvious mismatch and, and walked out of there feeling um, quite misunderstood and what I realized later was that as an economist, I didn't speak the language at all. So it took some time to sort of get, bi get bilingual so that I could actually talk to doctors. And even then, there was a lot of skepticism around, you know, this whole self-reporting, people will lie. And we were like, well, people are taking pictures of what they're eating as they're going through the day or they're reporting how they're feeling. So... If they, like, if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. They're not going to get any better. And we actually have, still today, we have a 97% completion rate of the program. And the only reason we have that is because we make a change. And we make a sustainable change that impact your day-to-day. -day. Because at the end of the day, you know, losing a foot to diabetes in 20 years, I'm sorry to say, but nobody really gets out of the ring for that. But if you're brain fogged and you're tired, and your joints hurt, 
and you feel like a crappy mother, if there's anything that can change that and where you can sort of see, oh, I'm getting better, you're going to keep going. I know that you guys are focused on autoimmune issues, but some of the symptoms you just labeled, have you all looked at women who are in perimenopause and menopause to also see how your, your tool can support them as well? And I know that's, it's a whole different ball game. So the reality is that most of our patients are going through that stage, whether they're actually going through menopause or not. I went through menopause already at like 26 with my mom. <laughs> and then, you know, had a couple of bouts later where my body was having all of the reactions as if I were going through menopause, even though that wasn't the case, because the hormonal riot for many autoimmune patients is, is a roller coaster. And so we, we do have clients in the program that are going through menopause and, and it's a part of the unraveling. But we've been very firm from the beginning that my knee conceptually is for autoimmune disease. Could we help with epilepsy? Could we help with migraine? Could we help with all sorts of other diseases? We, we know we could because we are actually helping people who come through the door with autoimmunity that have it as a comorbidity with those issues. But autoimmunity is such an underserved place and it's such a huge problem that only when it's directly related to autoimmunity do we go there. And so one area where we ventured out in this past year is, is COVID long haulers. And it really was sort of like a happenstance. Mount Sinai reached out to us in May of last year and said, hey, you know, we're starting to see these patient population walk through the door that is quite confounding. We don't really know what it is. And this was before we called them COVID long haulers or anything. This was just, you know, people coming through the door that looked like they had POTS or dysautonomia. And, and the numbers were so high that there was an alert, but there wasn't really an understanding yet. And so we built out a COVID protocol and because of the way we stage autoimmune patients and because of the way we look at this, we very soon saw that this was really an acceleration of pre-autoimmunity. And so to date, um, when we look at the, the, the COVID long hauler population and the autoimmune population, it's striking how disproportionate this is women. So in our general population, we have about 80% women across the board. We, in the COVID long haul population, have 84% of the people coming through are women. Overall, 31% of the COVID long haulers that we see already had an autoimmune diagnosis. And of course, there could be some bias when people go to our website and they see we're an autoimmune company when Mount Sinai refer them. Um, but, but we have seen a quite significant overlap, in particular in symptomology. You said earlier, you know, menopause reminds you. Well, the reality is that the COVID long haulers, they're brain fucked, they're confused, they're bone tired, and they have joint pain. So the only real differentiator is the cardiovascular aspect of uh, pulmonary issues and, and breathing issues. And so there is some intervention that we've added to the protocol for the COVID long haulers, but otherwise we are essentially taking them through sort of our core protocol. What about medication? So you alluded to the fact that a lot of people have been able to be treated and off medication. Would you say that everyone has been able to completely eliminate their medications? Is it, you know, a mixed bag? Like how would this 
transform the way we see food as medicine versus medicine as medicine or all of it together? So first of all, I'm always baffled that we eat, you know, two kilos of food a day and we believe that a a small pill that's two milligram has a huge impact, but the, you know, four pounds of food that we're eating on a daily basis has no impact. But that being said, we are actually not a company that really has anything to do with the medication portion. We know from payer studies that between 25 and and 33% gets off specialty pharma medication. But again, that has nothing to do with us. That's actually, you know, somebody going through Miami, having their blood work um, improve to an extent where their doctor decides to change their medicine regime. We've made a very clear distinction early on that we want patients to never feel alone. We want to empower them. And we don't want them to feel like they have to choose one or the other. We have people come through the program where they completely optimize their health. They go off their medications and then they come back and say, you know what? My life is less fun. I want to be able to drink beer. And if being on Stellara can allow me to drink alcohol, I have the best of both worlds. Miami made me symptom-free and the drugs allow me to drink alcohol. And there's no lifted fingers. Everybody has to be able to live what is the fullest life for them. I think from my perspective, I just want people to have the map so that they understand the impact and are able to actually navigate. Because I think to a large extent, the worst part of autoimmunity is not knowing. I think my worst moment to date was still a couple of years ago. I had a client through that had been, you know, diagnosed as a Parkinson's patient. And when I looked at her symptomology, I was very confused. And I said to her, I don't understand you being a Parkinson's patient to be, to be fair. And she goes, but, but, but the doctor I'm seeing is one of the most famous doctors. And I said, sure, but how did you get this diagnosis? And it became clear that her father-in-law had seen this doctor a couple of weeks before she started getting her neurological issues. And I said, well, sometimes the problem can be that it's just too obvious of a solution. In your case, I feel pretty sure if we got a death scan that you wouldn't actually qualify as a, as a Parkinson's patient. And so months later, because of the hurdle with insurance companies of getting that scan, which is a requirement in Europe actually for the diagnosis, Um, it became clear that she wasn't a Parkinson's patient. Yes, she had autoimmune issues, but she wasn't a Parkinson's patient. And she started crying and not like the happy, you know, relief crying. And I said to her, what's going through your head? And she goes, does this mean I'm crazy again? That is why we do what we do. And if we start judging people, if we start having opinions about drugs, if we start being all of that, we can't be what, we, what we've decided we want to be, which is a place where we listen to you and your body, and we, we take that and make it into actionable recovery. Wow, that is such a great example. And honestly, with all the things I've been seeing, I think it's so clear. And you know, I'd love your reaction to this observation. So I remember talking to somebody recently and, you know, I see these same issues as you. And again, I mentioned earlier, I'm all about the process. And some have said, 
you know, or I had asked, is it because I'm seeing the subset of the worst and it's really not that many people? And because of where I'm focusing my free time in researching all of this, or is it broader than we know because we've gotten to this society of acceptance of what normal is? Like you said, like you had in the very beginning of this discussion that there are people that you've spoken to who didn't know they had sleep problems because we normalize it because we live with it every day. So do you think it's a broader issue than a lot of people suspect? Or is it really narrow? And I'm not at all minimizing the work, but I'm just so curious if there's this bias of those of us in the corner who all hang out with the people with infertility, autoimmune issues, or... I think the problem is already completely out of control. Okay. But we've, we've, just, we've just seen the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately, because the reality is that nobody, unless you know they have... 24-hour diarrhea or unless they have severe issues, they're sort of dealing with nuggets of this. And so when, when we talk about the number of autoimmune patients being somewhere between you know, 23 and 50 million, because nobody actually had a registry over this. You know, we know that in 2012, there was 18.6 million people in the US that had elevated antibodies which means that you're sort of pre-autoimmune on your, on your way. Um, but again, the latest autoimmune numbers from 2008, the latest autoantibody numbers from 2012, we've always known that viruses and infections is the largest trigger for autoimmune disease. But in the past, that was Lyme's disease and Epstein-Barr. It was like obscure diseases that really were hard to pinpoint. And now we have 100 million people COVID infected in the US. We are gonna see a cascade of autoimmunity roll in over the next 24 months. And it's not just gonna be the 20 to 30 million long, long haulers. It's gonna be RA, sclerosis and so on that people are gonna be getting as a result of this triggering event. And right now we are seeing and, and our referral doctors are starting to send us cases and say, hey, you know, we're seeing more, we're seeing these things come in. And most patients say to us, well, I asked my doctor and he said it has nothing to do with COVID. Well, the reality is you didn't have any symptoms prior to COVID and post COVID you are now diagnosed. I don't know about the causality, but I do believe that we've, we've gotten to a place where if I go to a dinner party and people figure out what I do, which I try to hide for the most part, I will be talking about poop for the rest of the night because everybody is sort of having issues. And I think it's predominantly because of the environmental issues. And then the fact that we've completely destroyed our food chain, all of the GMO stuff that we have done that we thought we got away with, um, it, it looks like we didn't. <laughs> and I think, you know, when I grew up, people had seasonal allergies. And, you know, there was like the odd person who had like a peanut allergy. Today, you can't even bring peanuts to a kindergarten because it's like the majority have issues. And when you look around, the amount of people today who are popping pills for lactose intolerance or gluten digest or whatever it is that people are eating, um, that's not a coincidence. And autoimmunity takes a long time to produce. And so 
when I see women in their 40s with lupus, I can typically find a point when they're around 8 to 12 where we can see, okay, this was the first time. You know, if you have water retention around your pelvis at nine years old, whatever you were eating at nine is still causing you the issues now, but it's just a slow build. And so what we're doing as a society right now is we're building an enormous problem. And the hospitals in New York, for example, they've actually stopped doing ANA tests, not the COVID antibody testing, but the traditional antibody testing. You can only get done now if you're showing all of the physical manifestations of the disease. So in the past, if you came in and you sort of had all this weirdness, they would draw your blood to see if you have elevated autoantibodies to do further testing. But today, more people test positive than negative to this test, and the hospitals cannot afford to do the additional testing. So we've just decided to not test. And so if you put all of these pieces together, unfortunately, I think the problem is much, much worse and across a much, much broader population than we even can imagine at this point. Wow. I, I can definitely see that. So one thing I realized is I don't know if we completed our conversation related to how the medical system is feeling about the, the efforts you're doing. I know you had mentioned the challenges initially in trying to adapt how you spoke to the medical community. I'm, I'm hearing you alluding to clinicians referring some of their patients to you. So would you say now that they're starting to be, now that you have more and more data and examples, a transition into people being a lot more supportive of your efforts? I don't think that my need is this. I think on a societal level, we've changed quite dramatically. Food as medicine is no longer something that one person in the corner of the party heard of. It's, it's, it's becoming much more nutrition-based and, and holistic in the way that we look at healthcare. And I think the, the patient autonomy has sort of forced healthcare to look a little bit different at, at how things are done. Um, but that being said, the dermatologists and rheumatologists and gastroenterologists that are referring to us, they always say the same thing. It's like, it's not that we didn't understand the problem. We, we fully understand that there's triggers. We fully understand that you know eczema has a, a dietary component but there's too many variables for us to be able to actually pinpoint and figure it out. Yes. So in, in, in terms of physicians, I think it's not my me who's necessarily changed the world. I think that there's just been sort of a, a mainstream change in the way that we perceive health. And I think we're much more holistic today than we have been. And I think that has been a part of why all of a sudden, you know, we are, we are seeing an uptake in referral doctors and, and not least clinical uh, interest. Um, you know, years ago, we would never have dreamt of like the NIH coming to us saying, hey, we would love to work with you. Um, so, so I think from our perspective, of course, having data building into the system as a support tool instead of um, sort of an outside piece has, has made a big difference. But I also think it's super important as we're going through this journey to acknowledge that for the individual, all of us play a part in their journey and the better the relationship people have with their specialist, with their GP and so on, the better their outcome will be. 
So why don't you give us a quick snapshot of what happens when someone comes into Miami? Yeah, so if you're a patient coming into Miami off the street or through a pair, you're essentially first given access to an app. And for three days, you snap a picture of everything you eat. It's not because that's the end all be all. It's because we actually need you to learn how to log. And it's a new behavior. And most people eat every day. So that's where we start. Then you have your first intake call with a health coach. We have an enormous amount of data that has allowed us to build sort of like a, a process optimization sort of qualifier. And so for us, it's important to know if you're breaking down in sleep, in bowel movements, in hormones and sugars, or if it's only one or two areas. But now we have enough data that we can break down ways that actually that we need to start. And, and to be fair, that's still one of our biggest issues that some of it is quite counterintuitive. And if you come in with me as Davis Gravis, you want me to look at your eyes. You do not want me to look at your acid reflux or whatever else we, we decide we want to look at first. But we've figured out a way to sort of stack the issues in a way where you get the most bang for your buck. And so in the first weeks, we're really trying to process optimize. If you've been constipated since 82, it doesn't matter whether I figure out what your triggers are because your system is not responding. And so we really start out by optimizing, doing some of the low-hanging fruit. And while we're doing that, we're gathering intel. And that intel then allows us by, let's say, week four to say, this is most likely the trigger. And we then go in and eliminate that one or two things. Whether that pans out is, is generally the directional for where the, the, the client then heads next. So in some cases, there will be an iterative process or we'll need to eliminate one or two additional things. Let's say it's gluten. Well, in most cases, when you eliminate gluten, you actually figure out that there's something else like buckwheat or something else that's even worse. But only because you took out gluten did you actually start replacing all of your dietary things with this other thing. And so in some cases, it's easy. You take broccoli out, and no reaction. And in other cases, you take something out, but whatever you're replacing with ends up being the, the real culprit. And so that's sort of an iterative loop where you're sort of like figuring out your one or multiple triggers. And as you're then starting to see your inflammation go down, um, we start working with you on reducing, let's say, prednisone um, intake, because for most that's really a roller coaster that everybody's agreeing on. We need to sort of eliminate or stop because the side effects and, and the implications in terms of surgeries and stuff is, is, is pretty crazy. And then as you come towards the end of the program and you are, we sort of have a core program of 16 weeks, um, we generally reintroduce, we actually make people sick uh, on purpose and we don't do it because we mean we do it because we've seen over years of doing this that the way the brain works is that it forgets very easily how it used to be. So, you know, people come into the program with severe issues, joint pain, migraines, inability to sleep. And then we get their quote after the fact and they're like, well, my knee was great, but I really think I need to work on my gut issues. And you're like, well, you have no migraine, you have no joint pain, you sleep through the night and we've never even talked about the fact that you have a little bit of, you know, gastrointestinal issues 
but people have sort of forgotten about all the things they used to have. And so by reintroduction, you make it very clear that you could eat your way into this and you can eat your way out. You mentioned payers can be referred in. Um, so is this covered by insurance? So if you are a, a client with Oscar Help or Humana or a couple of others, it is covered. What is your greatest hope for women's health? My, my greatest hope for women's health is that there will never, ever be anyone again being told it's all in their head. When somebody actually seeks medical care, it's because there's something wrong. And whether we understand what that is or not is irrelevant. But we actually have to be able to trust the individual walking through the door. Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And another way to support FemPower Health Podcast is to leave a review where you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for information purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.